Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Hey, we, um, we're broadcasting from this bunker deep under the uh, prairie. Uh, and you know that's not true, but I have fun saying that because um, some days I feel like I'm in a bunker with what's going on here in our country, especially in Iowa, formerly the uh, culture, cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Now, we, well, now we're the capital of book bans and um, religious schools, abortion bans, banning local governments from establishing fair wage ordinances and environmental regulations. Yeah, so much for freedom and small government. But hey, fear not, folks, this too shall pass. And Iowa will once again be a state where reasonable people can disagree and not necessarily enact unreasonable policies. Okay, so enough of that. Thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. I am very happy to welcome to the program Brittany Prater. We're going to be talking about her film, Uranium Derby. But first, Brittany, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Your background. Yes, my background. Um, so I have a master's in fine art, uh, MFA in sculpture, actually. And then, yeah, after the making of this film, I, I've been working in television as a TV editor. Um, on a few different shows for Animal Planet, Discovery, TLC, different okay. stuff like that. So this so. is your first film? This was, yeah, my yeah. very first. Yeah, and it's called, uh, you, I'm going to say Ukrainian, Uranium, Uranium Derby. Uranium Derby, yes. And it's a film about the beginning of the nuclear age, uh, which again, we think about the development of the nuclear bomb, we think about Los Alamos, New Mexico, but there were several places around the country that were pivotal in the development of that technology and one of them was your hometown Ames Iowa correct yeah yeah and I really before sort of looking into it I didn't I didn't know about this history at all so the making of the film was a process of uncovering this history and did you find that most people you talked with the names didn't really know about it as well um a lot of older people knew a few things here and there mm -hmm. but no a lot of people don't know about it yeah, a lot of people are very surprised. So I'm interested in the in what happened in the back in in the past. Uh, what role the the Iowa State University played in the development of the uh, of the atomic bomb, but also about what you know what what has transpired since then. Because I understand there's some real concerns about the waste product that was produced in the production of that uh, of, of that, uh, that that uh, those bombs. But let's start with. Um, so this is back in the 40s, where the Ames Laboratory at Iowa State University was commissioned to do work on the atomic bomb? Yeah, yeah. Um, before, so, yeah, before the Ames was involved, there was, um, there was, you could really only get uranium in, like, the size of little pellets, and they made it possible to get pure uranium in the size of, like, a birthday cake. So that's really what they... <laughs> that's, a, um, that's putting a warm and fuzzy touch on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, before uranium is enriched, it has to be purified. And that's the process that they developed in Ames. It was a pretty kind of... I would say it's a fairly crude, messy process. Um, it's a exothermic process. It's sort of you heat this stuff to a certain level, and the, the uranium kind of migrates down to make this derby shape. So that's where the name Uranium ah, Derby, derby. Okay. comes from. Just they were casting derbies out of uranium. Derbies? They're not, because they don't not shape like a hat. 
That's what people oh, thought, yeah. Oh, okay. They, they, <laughs> that's so where it was. the name comes from, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. And again, nobody wears derbies anymore, but I guess back in the 40s and 50s, that was a thing. I guess, or at least they remember people they wearing remember, derbies. Remember, all right. So, so <laughs> yeah. anyway, what, uh, again, most of the work that went into the actual production of the bomb, the testing of the bomb, was happening in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So what, um, how, how did the work at Iowa State University you know, transfer to that centralized effort? Okay, well, so they were sort of earlier on in the process. So they were producing the uranium. So uranium would come from Chad in Africa, actually, this really? uranium. Yeah, a, a mine called the Shinkalobi mine, actually. Hmm. Um, the specific, um, anyway, so it, and it came down the Mississippi River, I think, through St. Louis somehow. Anyway, so in Ames, they had this, this uranium that's like attached to other metals and stuff. So they purified it, these derbies. Then these derbies get sent to um, actually to um, Oak Ridge in Tennessee, okay. where the enriching happens. So in order to have what's called fissionable uranium, um, it's, it's a certain isotope mm -hmm. that you want for making a bomb, 235, which is not as prevalent in nature as 238, which I guess is a good thing in a way <laughs> that it's not it's not the more prevalent isotope. So they they take these centrifuges and they they isolate the the that isotope and then and then I know that the bombs were assembled in Los Alamos and so and that's where they were actually you know where they yeah where they assemble the bombs yeah and I know Hanover is it Hanover uh, Washington Hanford Hanford thank you yeah. Hanford Washington is uh, was another that's, pivotal location for the development yeah that's where the plutonium was made hmm. um, and plutonium is a, a man-made element uh, made out of uranium so uranium is the biggest naturally occurring element on mm -hmm. the periodic table and plutonium's bigger than that so they um, Created yeah. plutonium at Hanford, and yeah. So I mean, I, I want to talk about the politics and the morality of all this too, but still trying to just dig into the um, the, the the facts of what happened. So this stuff is produced. Um, at some point, there had to be a test, right? And, and and did that test occur at Iowa State University? A test of what? Um, the, the the the. the to kind of create that sustained nuclear uh, chain nuclear reaction. Oh, the first. So the first sustained reaction happened in Chicago. Okay. So that's the other thing. Actually, this stuff was was like originally going to take place in Chicago, but then the people at Iowa State were like, "Oh, we have the we have the you know the physics department here. We have the people or the chemistry, and we have the people to do it." Um, and so anyway, so um, Spedding, Frank Spedding, who was sort of in charge of the Frank Spedding and Harley Wilhelm. Um, we're sort of working with Chicago together. Um, Compton, I can't re remember his first name right now, but anyway, Compton was, I believe, based in Chicago. And anyway, they, so on the trains, they took the uranium from Ames to Chicago. Hmm. And then that's where they had this first sustained chain reaction. And Enrico So where, I'm curious, where in Chicago did they conduct this chain reaction? It was in the football field, I think <laughs> under the stands of the, yeah. <laughs> there was a big Not big during pile. a game, I assume. <laughs> I, I, I assume not, no. Yeah. So how, how, is that, how is that safe? I mean, uh, don't you need a whole bunch of space to make that happen? Well, this, I guess 100 yards is enough? Yeah, I don't think safety was the primary. I don't know. I, I, it was the pre-OSHA era, right? So 
OSHA didn't exist yet. But OSHA um, never even applied to the Department of Energy anyhow, did it? True. Yeah. That's true. So, yeah. so anyway. <laughs> yeah, safe. I don't know. Yeah. But the stuff they were doing in Ames was also. So why, why, why did they take it to Chicago and not do it at Iowa State University's football field? I don't. I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> Sorry. I, I, that's that's just that's, that's, a, that, that's, that's a, Chicago's story. I think. Well, yeah. I I yeah. That's a good question. So, I, I'm but anyway, I'm I'm, I'm kind of glad I wasn't at the fifty yard line for that one. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but there's uh there are. I mean, I've I've seen your film and it's really good. I hope other people will take an opportunity to uh, to check it out. It's it's educational. It's important. It's timely. It's especially timely given the release of the Oppenheimer. Uh, and timely in terms of what's happening in Ukraine and the concern risk of, of, of nuclear war, given given that conflict. But um, here's, here, I think one, one very interesting thing about your film, and this, this has interested me for a long time too, is what happens to the waste product. And apparently, there's a really disturbing story about what happened to the waste material in your hometown of Ames. Yeah, well, there's and there's a few different sort of offshoots of that story, right? There's the stuff that was created when they were working on the bombs um, before, you know, before because the Ames Laboratory, the laboratory was born kind of after the war out of this um, work mm. that was done on the bombs very secretly. And so there's a waste that was generated um, when they were doing that work, um, which is, you know, uranium tailings and things, because when you cast those uranium derbies you're chipping stuff off that's you know and then that stuff where does that stuff go and it goes oh it goes by the creek in a big hole in the you know ymca woods or whatever it is you know and, you, that, you, or not whatever that is kind that's of that's not just an off the cup description that's that's an actual actual location that some of the waste went that is and that is an area that there was a big cleanup in i believe it was the 90s might have been early 90s around around that time there was a large large cleanup of of that area, but yeah, so there how, was a lot of waste taken out so of there. How much nuclear waste would have been produced throughout the lifetime of this facility and their work? Well, so the process was invented in Ames, and right. then it was taken over um, on a larger scale afterwards during the Cold War in Fernalto, Ohio. And so okay. that's where the large scale kind of then production of the staff happened later. Um, in terms of during the war and stuff, um, yeah, it was, it was, people often talk about Ames as being sort of bench scale research for like bigger stuff that happens in other places. But I mean, I, yeah, I think it's like part, the other part of the film, the part about sort of like, there's the part of the film that's kind of like from the fifties, right? So when then at the laboratory, they're working with thorium, um, trying to figure out, I think how to get energy out of thorium, because that's the next, the next thing is sort of trying to figure out how to get energy out of, um, nuclear energy out of these various, mm -hmm. um, metals, Thorium is like just slightly smaller than uranium as the atoms go. I think, yeah, uranium can decay into thorium. So that thorium was flushed down the drains um, at the time. Literally. Yes, it was. Yeah, Literally. They were, uh, yes, they were just flushing stuff down the drains. Literally. Okay, and so where does that end up? At the water waste treatment facility? The, yes, the old wastewater treatment facility, yeah. And so did Ames residents have thorium in their water supply back then? It's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not going to speculate on that, uh, but it did end up at this sewage treatment plant, right? And thorium is a heavy metal, and it ends up in this sewage sludge, right? Okay. So then what do you do at a waste treatment plant? You take that sludge out, 
and you spread it across the field nearby. You do, you know, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What you, you spread it across? Or you the give field it away nearby. for fertilizer for people's gardens, which is what they were doing how in come, the '50s. How can that be thought of as a good form of fertilizer? We use chicken manure. Why is why is sludge laced with thorium considered a good? Was that just a crazy snake oil salesman? Doing that, or was there was there some real reason why they had had cause to believe that it could help your plants grow? Uh, I'm assuming it's a rhetorical question because I I really don't know. I yeah. I wasn't there in the fifties. Okay, well, <laughs> I was born in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I just I just know that you know there was a woman who told me, oh yeah, we were encouraged to go pick up some sewage sludge wow. as fertilizer for our garden, and but they and did, the, but they put it other places as well. I mean, so individuals got it for their home gardens. But yeah, and then I, it didn't didn't it get spread on a like a like a soccer field or something? Well, that is that is, I believe so. I mean, I think I think, yeah, um, that's a tricky one. I think so. It's well, the other issue is that so. This wastewater treatment facility, is no longer there. It's a new facility, but it was at the top of a hill. The bottom of the hill is a floodplain, right? And so. Waste that's buried doesn't necessarily stay put. Heavy metals, they, they, they might travel downhill with the water, all this stuff. But also, I do, I mean, there, there was someone who was telling, anyway, that's not substantiated. So I, I believe they were, anyway, careful. Um, sorry. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, in, in the film, we see, uh, we see quite a bit of discussion about a, um, a waste being spread in several places throughout Ames. Yeah. Uh, including a, a graveyard, which I think is interesting. Um, the, uh, um, and, and then, and then, and then yeah. a, a vacant area outside the city that nobody thought would be developed that now that back in the 90s, the city wanted to develop as a sports complex. Correct. Yeah. And so that sports complex it was built, was approved despite objections from a number of people, yeah. including Johan Schergolchen who um, was, is very prominently featured in your film. Correct, yeah. And who's been very involved with these kinds of issues. I mean, yeah. th- that, that was exposed as a place that, that might indeed be at risk. Correct, From radio, yeah. radioactive contamination, and yet they went ahead and built this sports complex. They did, they did. That seems very ill-advised. Yeah, there were a number of city council meetings about it, and, um, and there, was a, there was a company, an outside company that was hired um, to test the site, but this company was, um, I had the, I had this report, um, looked at by a geologist and it did sound like it was sort of like the, he said, he, he, he basically said that it, it kind of looked like the report had been designed to prove a certain type of thing, right? Like you can, yeah, you can, sure. or, or it's sort of like if you, if you take samples, you want to take them. Right. In a sort of orderly fashion, and you want to—I I don't know. It's like, it's like I'm when a scientist, oil, so I get like, nervous. It's like know. when an oil company uh, pays for research to show that whatever it's doing is not causing any problems. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a—it's—it's yeah. it's a standard kind of approach to a, a polluting industry conducting research with a with an entity that's going to give them the product, the, the results they want. Well, and what so. I what is kind of fascinating to me is that the Ames Laboratory itself had this atomic emission spectrometer that was um, retrofitted into a trailer. It's like a very good device for testing for um, radioactive waste. And it was designed for mapping out plumes. 
And um, it was never used in Ames. And eventually it was dismantled. And so mm. then you kind of wonder, well, why? If they, if they really... It's like, well, if you really want to know exactly what the problem is, then shouldn't you use your best equipment to try to figure out? Mm. <laughs> anyway, that, yeah. Mm. So. Well, I, I think... Uh, I, I hope people... Um you know, take time to look into uh, what you've created. And if, uh, if they are interested in, in viewing the film, what's the uh, next best opportunity for folks in the Des Moines area? 7 p.m. on Wednesday, the 19th of July, which will be, will this be airing on the, so it will be today, right? If, if this is airing on the Wednesday? It, or, it varies. I don't know. Oh, varies, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the screening will be at 7 p.m. on the 19th at the Varsity Theater. Varsity and, Theater in Des Moines, okay. Correct, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, we'll see. Yeah, all right, very good. Yeah. Um, so, uh, folks, stick around. We're going to uh, be back in a minute with um, more conversation. Brittany's going to join me for that. And uh, I want to leave you with this as we go out. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to the Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Uh, CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to our other sponsors, including our Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipstrom asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, so welcome back. And uh, with me in the studio, Brittany Prater. And uh, we've been discussing her film, Uranium Derby. Derby. Yep, Uranium Derby. I'm still derby. trying to get my wrap my <laughs> mind around what a derby looks like. I guess I do, I guess I do know, but... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a hat. I'm young enough where derbies <laughs> preceded me, anyway. It's a bowler hat, right? I, think. I guess, yeah. And I suppose uh, Robert Oppenheimer wore one. If I can trust by the uh, by the depiction in the uh, trailer for the film Oppenheimer, oh, it looks right. like he was derby inclined. <laughs> 
So maybe, maybe that gives some. This now, is there, is there any connection to the release of your film now, the 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 premiere at uh, at the Varsity Theater, and the release of Oppenheimer? Is that just a coincidence? Well, the movie theater decided to time it that way, which I thought ah, was a great idea. So it's not a coincidence, but it was their idea. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. Yes. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, and I don't, yeah, I know that uh, Oppenheimer is being paired with Barbie, which is an interesting combo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe there's even more logic in pairing it with the uh, Ukrainian. Ukraine. We had trouble. <laughs> uranium Derby. <laughs> yeah, we, we had trouble tying Barbie into Uranium Derby. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think to fit any Barbie dolls into the. Into the no, film. no, you have to do, you have to do a redo at some point. Yeah. So Amy, it's, you know, I, I I guess I'm really I want to talk about the peace movement and where it is today. I mean, when I was when I was first getting involved in trying to make the world a better place, that was my focus. I was focused on nuclear disarmament, on reducing military spending, uh, you know, and doing more for the kinds of security that really matter in our country. Mm-hmm. Better yeah. healthcare system, you know, better. You know, better social service network, um, more support for, for you know, creative types of farming. I mean, so many things that need to be funded, and yet we have uh, we see the military budget continuing to grow and grow and grow. Yeah. And now we're at a time when, um, you know, the 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 peace movement kind of went away. You know, and it, it, yeah. it, it was it was it was the, back when you said you were born in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So back when you were probably too young to remember this thing, it was huge. There were marches, protests, uh, civil disobedience. There were candidates that ran specifically yeah. on peace. I mean, Senator Harkin was the presidential candidate in 1992 who received the peace movement's endorsement, and that was a big thing. Mm. Yeah. So, so it just seems, you know, I don't know what happened to the peace movement, honestly. <laughs> I mean, there yeah. there are plenty of other concerns that popped up. Um, yeah. And maybe, maybe as a younger person, you have some perspective on it. Wow, wow. I mean, hmm. <laughs> uh, where did it go? <laughs> I guess, well, I guess people used to be drafted, right? And now we don't have the draft. I think that's a very good point. There was a lot of concern. I mean, a lot of the concern in the peace movement wasn't just about nuclear weapons. It was also about Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam was how it kind of got started. I think so, yeah. And you're right. People were being drafted. Yeah. Friends, relatives, people that everybody knew were coming home in body bags. Yeah. So yeah, that's a big part of it. That's not happening now. Yeah. Uh, there are still absolutely there are still casualties, and many of those casualties come back alive, yet very much damaged, psychologically yeah. and otherwise, yeah. sometimes physically. But um, for me, I I guess I can speak for my own story is, I became more concerned about climate change, mm-hmm. because while I'm concerned about how what a nuclear war would do to our planet, and to civilization. Yeah. It seemed to me that was a potential impact when, in yeah. fact, climate change is already having a comparable impact. That's true, yeah. yeah. And there's an interesting way in which sort of sometimes sometimes the sort of nuclear, well, nuclear energy is sometimes posed, right, as a sort of form of clean energy. Yes. It's sort of something that's almost going to help us get through... Um, Climate change. Yeah, now. which yeah. I, but it, it comes at its own costs, which are very long term. Yeah, and that, that's a conversation we have not had on this program that we need to because there, there are those who insist that the new generation of nuclear reactors are, 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 are free of the problems and liabilities and questions that, that the old type of reactors raised. And one of those, of course, was the disposal of nuclear waste, yeah. which is certainly relevant to your film. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the waste that is discussed in your film is, is the byproduct of 
nuclear weapons production, but mm-hmm. I would imagine that you could make a comparable you have a comparable conversation about you know about waste from nuclear power as well. Well, yeah, and you know I haven't I haven't done a lot of research into what new nuclear reactors are like or what the difference is. I know that the old ones were basically kind of a bomb that boils water, right? <laughs> <laughs> like it's pretty much not it's not that different of a technology than, um, than a nuclear weapon. And and the things yeah. that that thing the the materials that that um you know, they have to be mined still, right? And people who live near those mines are going to be affected, and those areas can't be cleaned up. If you if you mine uranium, mm-hmm. you're you're really ruining an area for potentially forever. Sure. <laughs> um, companies that mine places, they they will never make enough money to pay for the cleanup, so they just you know abandon these sites, and yeah. you know. So anyway, but you know it would be interesting for you to talk to somebody who would who would know more about um, yeah. new nuclear reactors now yeah. than if they're any you know if and how they're how they're different. Yeah, and you know it's, I, I you know I, I know um again watching your film. And seeing the trailer for uh, Oppenheimer is, fish- is not officially out yet as we as we record this yeah, program, but it yeah. will be soon, and I I am interested in watching it. I'm really curious about what the perspective will be. And I, you know, looking at Oppenheimer's life, I mean, he um, he, he developed this weapon of mass destruction, and yeah. it seems like there was the imperative was to we have got to do this before Hitler does it because if right. you can imagine Nazi Germany under Hitler with nuclear. A nuclear weapons capacity. Mm-hmm. That's that's a pretty scary pros- proposition. It is, yeah. So e- even the even the consummate peace activist, you know, peace person like myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> thinks, okay, what would have happened if 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 we had not put that kind of time and effort into developing a bomb simply to deter Hitler from doing it? That's um, you know, that's that's a tough question, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the end. Germany wasn't as close as we thought, but there was no, no way to know that, no. right? Right. Um, yeah, and and then once we had developed this, these bombs, it, it you know, it, 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 I don't know. I, I think we yeah. we're determined to use them. Well, and that well, actually, right now, I'd say we're determined not to use them, and, and that's yeah. uh, that's wise. But <laughs> I, I I think I think uh, reality is going to outpace our wisdom. I mean, at some point. I don't see how you avoid having a nuclear weapon or multiple nuclear weapons be used in the future. I mean, again, reflecting on the history of the bomb, I get I get what was driving people like Oppenheimer. Mm. Um, but I'm fascinated. I, I, you know, reading, learning more about Oppenheimer. Apparently, you know, he was he commended the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, which to me that bothers me because I think you probably could have just blown up an island somewhere off the coast of Japan and said, hey, Emperor Hirohito, look what we can do. Please surrender. Or, you know, there's film footage <laughs> of the Trinity bomb test. Oh, sure, so. yeah. Yeah, just show that. And then uh, Oppenheimer, though, again, just showing just a, kind of the, the, the conflict that was within him, he was um, he was appalled that a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Mm, a much and, bigger one. And a bigger one. And he went to Truman and he complained about it. He, well, he was furious, at it, furious with Truman about it, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I asked the same question. You know, I, I, I don't see why you would want to drop the bomb in the first place on Hiroshima, let alone the second one. It makes no sense at all. And, um, you know, and those bombs are like firecrackers compared to the, the, de- the, the destructive capacity of what's now available. Yeah, like a hydrogen bomb. The trigger is a plutonium bomb. 
So you've got a plutonium bomb trigger for a hydrogen bomb. So. And what that that means. So that means that yeah, the the size and the scope of it, like you think about how huge a plutonium mm. bomb is, and that's just the trigger for the hydrogen bomb. Yeah. Um, they they did they did explode one of those underground in the U.S. and they thought they could kind of. Get away with it without anyone knowing, but it set off so many tremors that it was like, oh no, you, you I, I, because you know they weren't allowed to technically at, at a certain point after. Oh gosh, now I'm trying to remember. Um, was it in the '70s that they passed the um, the test bans? '90s. Uh, well, no, you're right. There was an original uh, the test ban test ban limitation in the '60s. I mean, because they used to test above ground in Nevada. Mm -hmm. They yeah. moved the testing underground. I mean, small constellation, I suppose. Yeah. Less drift, <laughs> but still. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was 1996 that uh, Bill Clinton signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Mm. But you know, the, the whole, it's just the whole thing is such a mess uh, because we know what these bombs can do, right? And yet we allow what close to 15,000 to exist. Yeah, we have so you know? many. And, and I look at the coverage of the war in Ukraine, and it almost never talks about how that war could easily shift into something mm -hmm. far more serious involving nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, your film, Oppenheimer, other conversations, whether they be in film or in theater or music or writing, I hope more and more people start putting that pressure on our government to begin to get serious about disarmament. I mean, yeah. we had Obama talked about it. Yeah. Did nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I didn't even know Biden ever talked about it. But uh, he certainly no, is. No, he's been busy. <laughs> been, well, now he's busy sending cluster bombs to Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. Well, well, how could that possibly, uh, uh, you know, further upset the Russians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, it is a mess. I mean, it, it is. I mean, if the original premise of building the bomb was to deter the Nazis because some crazy guy... Adolf Hitler, in this case, might do something severe with it. You know, crazy people haven't gone away. They're still out there. Yeah. Um, and and whether you whether you <laughs> whether you dub whether you dub Putin as crazy or simply dangerous, you know, I, I, I people say, oh, you've never used the nuclear bomb. What? Why do you say that? What? What makes you think that a that Putin backed into a corner, maybe maybe threatened with a um a revolution from within his own country, as nearly happened. Why would he not say, oh, to heck with it, I'm just going to drop this puppy? Well, even, I mean, even here we just had uh, President Trump, right? And almost a, almost a coup. <laughs> and like, you know, well, like, yeah. even, I mean, we talk about Russia, but we could, you know, we yeah. fall into that category ourselves if we can, I don't yeah. know if our own government is, um, yeah. It's, I don't think we're, we're capable of that yet, but I think it's possible. <laughs> I mean, it's, we, we've seen how many weaknesses there are in our system. And mm -hmm. what, and what, uh, what kind of uh, uh, ill, ill forces might uh, occupy those crevices? You know? Well, I think, I think human, human denial is kind of at the core of, at least of the film that I made, and I think it's sort of maybe the core of sort of how these things could be invented in the first place. Like I think some of the scientists working yeah. on them were so interested in how to, how to, how to. Sure, I oh, I, th I think I think scientific curiosity is one. But that, that's that's a really fascinating thing about Oppenheimer is he was an American hero for developing this weapon that ended the war, and you know and managed to accomplish it before Hitler made a nuclear weapon. And then what happened to him? Well, he became a victim of, of Joseph McCarthy, mm. the 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 
the there's a communist under every rock, uh, you know, plague, the witch hunt. Yeah. Uh, he, he was he was ousted from power, from any position of privilege, from any, any position of authority. Yeah. Um, by, by by the same forces that, you know, that, that put even some Americans to death out of this fear of communism. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, it's fascinating to me um, uh, in terms of human nature, but of deep concern. And I say, I, and again, I say, where is the U.S. peace movement? I and mean, we have That's we true. have all the reasons yeah. why we should be as fired up and active and in the streets as as ever. As we, I mean, we're that way about climate change. Yeah. But you know, to me, climate and uh, global security go hand in hand because the more unstable things become because of the shifting climate, the more unstable they will become internally and, 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 and uh, internationally. Well, it's going to be about global cooperation with one another, right, if we want to survive as a species on this planet. It, ha- it has to be. Um, it has to be. I mean, diplomacy has to be what we, we, what we, uh, what we uh, engage in. It can't be the fallback position. You know, and right now, I mean, I see, I see the mainstream media say this all the time. Well, we, you know, Ukraine has to have the best possible bargaining position, you know. So the more land they regain, you know, the more they accomplish, the better. And in the meantime, lives are lost, tensions mount, yeah. cluster bombs are sent, threats of nuclear weapons are being used. Uh, you know. mm-hmm. So where is the peace movement? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I'll work on that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Next time you're on this program, Brittany, I want to hear about the uh, I want to hear about the great work you're doing with the with the revived revised revived peace movement. Yeah, and a yeah. film about that. It's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, hey, uh, folks, again, uh, thanks to uh, Brittany Prater for joining me today. Brittany, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And one more mention about your your film, in case people missed the earlier mention of it, Uranium Derby. Uranium Derby. Yeah, there's a website, uraniumderby.com. There's a trailer and some information about the film. It'll be screening at the Varsity on uh, the 19th at 7 p.m. And, and if people aren't in Des Moines, uh, where do they go to enjoy that opportunity? To see the film? Um, we are working on, I have a sales rep, we're working on getting some educational distribution for it, hopefully in the next two to four months. All right. So. Hey folks, we'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. 
CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so it is no mystery, no surprise, not newsworthy that voting is under attack. I, there's so many, I mean, every, every, gee, I mean, half the states in the country have instituted uh, punitive voting laws. I want to take a quick look at Florida before looking at Iowa and Georgia and maybe some other places. But uh, Florida Republicans, they, um, <laughs> Dozens of voter registration groups have been um, hit with these fines. I mean, some of them thousands of dollars in fines. This is the uh, kind of the latest attempt by uh, Governor Ron, Ron DeSantis, uh, who I think like to be dictator Ron DeSantis. Uh, it's, it's really, it's being described as an alarming crackdown on voting. And uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's a whole new level. I mean, Gerrymandering is probably the worst form of voter suppression we've got, but there's so many other tools in the voter suppression just war chest. This is a new one, at least to me. But there have been 26 groups in Florida that uh, since last September, uh, they've, been, um, they've been on the receiving end of over $100,000 in fines. Now, so I so who are these sleazebag organizations trying to subvert democracy, right? That's our question, right? So um, the groups include, and sometimes they're actually individuals, but the groups include for-profit and non-profit organizations, and even the um, Democratic Party, and maybe surprisingly, even the Republican Party. I just, just for good balance, I guess, they've got both parties in there too. But let's look at one. Uh, a group that was fined $7,500, the Hispanic Federation. Why were they fined? Because apparently you can only register voters within the, a certain county. Uh, if, you, if you register somebody in the wrong county, that's a fine. Now, now again, it was just a handful of people in, it's, it's Polk County, Polk County, Florida. A handful of people in Polk County, Florida were registered on the wrong side of the county line. Some of them were just within spitting distance. <laughs> Some of them, I mean, all, all of these are innocent accidents. They, are, these, they aren't trying to cheat the system. They aren't trying to register in the wrong county to tip an election. Again, it was very few people. In every case, they were close to the county line. So confusion was the best possible explanation. Not malice, not an intent to try to subvert democracy. But, you know, they were, the Hispanic Federation was fined 7500 bucks because it was the organization that was involved with the, re, the voter registration drive that led to those, you know, 
horrendous deceptions. <laughs> uh, now, and now it gets worse, by the way, folks, because the um, the Florida state legislature, which is um, predominantly Republican, in 2022, they raised the minimum amount a group could be fined because they they put a cap on it before. You could only be fined a thousand bucks. Well, that changed in 2022. So what did it change? What do you get? What do you guess? Come on, take a guess. Go on, go come guess. Did it, they raised it to what? Two thousand? They doubled it, maybe? Maybe they tripled it? Maybe three thousand? No, they raised the fine from one thousand to fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> You could find a group $50,000 for a transgression of voter registration regulations. But wait, there's more <laughs> because that was in 2022. So what happened this year? Yeah, they increased it again. And no, they didn't increase it from 50 to 60,000. They increased it from 50,000 to a quarter of a million. I, I mean, if this wasn't criminal morally, it would be it would be comical. It would be, it's, it's almost like a story you'd read in the Onion. It's so ridiculous. And to make matters even worse, the Florida legislature, again with the blessing and probably encouragement of Ron DeSantis, also shortened the the time period when an organization like Hispanic Federation could turn in voter registration forms. So you know you're out there, you're you're getting people registered to vote. You bring those forms back to your office, you know. You know, there's no really no compelling reason to get them into the voter into the uh, the county auditor immediately. Well, now there is because you used to have 14 days to do it. Now you've got 10, and if you don't meet that deadline, boom, you're fine. That used to be a thousand dollars is now two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Who else thinks this is problematic? All right, all right. So again, Hispanic Federation, not the only organization in Florida that has been hit with these voter registration fines. Uh, there are two groups that got knocked for $70,000, and one of them is called Hard Knocks Strategy. Uh, they're a for-profit election canvassing organization, okay? And they were fined $47,600. Uh, that's over the last two years for turning in forms late or to the wrong county. Again, careless maybe, but also easy to do. And there's another group called Poder Latin. Uh, how, how do you pronounce A-L-A-L-A-T-I-N-X? I'm not even sure. Latinx. Poder Latinx. That means Latin power. Uh, they were fined 26000 for turning in 52 voter registration applications to the wrong county. Okay, do the math on that. 52 voter registration applications went to the wrong county, and they were fined $26,000. I mean, come on, this is... This this is voter suppression, not just of the individual voter, but also of groups that are trying to get people registered to vote. And as somebody who has run for office nine times now and won't ever do it again uh, <laughs> uh, and spent a lot of time doing voter registration myself and helping organize volunteers to do voter registration, it's real easy to make an innocent mistake. There are so many different ways you can make an innocent mistake. Again, it could be the organization. It could be the registrant, him or herself. Uh, so anyway, um, I mentioned too that there were individuals who were uh, fined for you know, some kind of egregious election violation. Enter Regina Jackson. Uh, she's a pastor in Jacksonville. And she received a notice uh, earlier this year 
that she was being fined $50 for turning in a voter registration form late. Okay. <laughs> like, who cares if you turn it in today, tomorrow, 14 days from now, a month from now? I mean, who cares? Why does that matter? It's, you know, it, it's, it's like somehow, it, 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 some, it's somehow it's important to some secretary of state that, that you know, that, that, that gets returned right away. It's, again, it's her own voter registration form. She returned it late. I'm putting late in quotes because that's ridiculous. And she wasn't actually fined. Uh, I, I guess she, I'm, I'm kind of confused about the information. It says she was fined, then it says she wasn't, so maybe she didn't have to pay it. But the, um, the letter said that the application didn't have a mark noting the group that had collected it and the date printed in triplicate. Because somehow the date in triplicate is so dang important. Now, uh, Jackson, according to this story in uh, The Guardian, Jackson re inquired about the uh, form um, before she turned it in with the election office and had been advised that it was acceptable. So it wasn't even her fault. She was told that it was fine, and yet she still got this letter in the mail from the Secretary of State saying, oops, sorry, you're, uh, we're going to dock you 50 bucks for this. So Jackson, again, according to the story, considered stopping registering voters altogether after receiving the letter, but has since reconsidered. I like her quote. I was like, quote, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore, she said in May after she got the letter. Quote, then I thought I would not only be hurting my community, but I would be allowing the system to win. So good for her. So... All right, other forms of voter suppression, gerrymandering. I mentioned that. I, I you know, I could spend a whole, a whole segment on on gerrymandering. Again, Democrats do it as well. They don't do it as thoroughly, or as maliciously, uh, or as or as widespread as Republicans. There are states where Republicans have been so effective at gerrymandering that um, Democrats pretty much have no shot at having any anything more than just a minimal control. Louisiana comes to mind. Uh, North Carolina. Um, but, uh, you know, looking at Iowa, I mean, Iowa has a, again, we have a good, uh, good system for redistricting every 10 years. I'm, I will be surprised if our, our new governor who is, and she's not new anymore, but she is basically acting more like a dictator. I will be surprised if she doesn't make a run next session to try to change Iowa's districting system again, which is good. Um, but uh, so, so again, without changing that redistricting system, Iowa has been finding, you know, Iowa Republicans have been finding other ways of suppressing the vote. And um, one of those is uh, reducing the number of days when a voter can request an absentee ballot. Uh, it used to have, you know, quite a bit, I, I, over a month, I think, a month and a half maybe. And now I can't remember how long, but it's, it's like way less, way less. They've also, here in Iowa, Shorten the number of uh, shorten the uh, the hours that polls are open on election day, and what I find most egregious is uh, you know I used to be able to go next door to my elderly neighbor and say hey would you like me to run an absentee ballot request form into the auditor's office for you oh sure Ed that'd be nice I can't get out I can't do that anymore you can't it, that has to come from you directly or a family member so this was a way that our our Secretary of State try to um, limit the ability of grassroots organizations 
uh, and and honestly, you know, low-income neighborhoods from being as active politically. So, you know, the uh, probably the worst thing here, folks, of all the things that have happened in Iowa, the worst is that about about a fourth of our voters were moved to the inactive status. This is a new change. The Republican Secretary of State took 565,000 Iowa voters and moved them to, quote, inactive status. Why are they inactive? What did they do wrong? Did they stay at home, uh, you know, years at a time and not participate? Well, all they did was did not vote in the 2022 midterm general election. Now, the midterm election is historically low turnout. And so the 25% of Iowans that did not vote in midterm elections are suddenly inactive. I mean, okay, so I, I you know, and I, I don't feel as bad, or, bad about Iowa when I look at Florida or Georgia. I mean, in Georgia, they now prohibit the distribution of food or water to voters waiting to cast their ballots. And we we're talking about potentially really hot conditions, uh, potentially really, really long lines. And why are the lines so long? Well, there are more registered voters in Georgia because they've done a good job at getting people registered. But over the last several years, Georgia officials have closed 214 voting precincts. Okay, so that's, um, that's down 8%. And that's a problem because, you know, you know, you've got more people voting, less places to vote, long lines, and you're not allowed to help the people in line with a bottle of water or a bite to eat. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how, there's so many different ways that they can suppress the, suppress the vote. Uh, you know, another one, of course, is felons. If, you're, if, you're, if you were a felon, uh, chances are you weren't going to be allowed to vote in, in several states. That was the case in Iowa. One thing I'll say about our Republican governor, she at least changed that policy and allowed, uh, allowed, um, allowed uh, felons to register to vote. So that frees up 35,000 to 45,000 former felons to be able to do that. Anyway, it's, um, it's real problematic, folks. And um, where it goes from here, I don't know. But um, I do know that it would really help if, um, it, you know, tell people to go out and vote. One thing you shouldn't do is don't do what Joe Biden did to me and tell me not to vote. Yeah, yeah I, I like you, and I'm going to support you if you win the nomination. We got to get rid of Trump. But what are we going to do about climate change? Now you say you say you're against pipelines, but then you want to replace these gas lines. That's not going to work. We can't. We, we got to stop building and replacing pipelines. We got to go vote for somebody else. All right. Thanks so much, sir. We're going to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm going to vote you in the general if you treat me. Yeah, I know. Well, can I have a can I have a You're asking a picture of me. Coming up, tell me you don't support me. No, no, no. My plan. Yeah, you did. You said you. I said I will support you in the general. In the general. I'm looking for a primary. We're happy to get a member. That's what I'm looking. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design build services for high performance, low maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy efficient methods you can afford 
and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, uh, Kathy Burns is with me. Hello, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. It's a it's a more pleasant day than usual. We're not having the extreme heat that we've been having a lot. Lately. Or that they're having in plenty parts of the That's world. That's right. Yeah, but extreme heat is a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, related to all that and all the other climate impacts, they're a problem, and they're a problem for our food production. And a shout-out to uh, John Davis for, Davis for putting us in touch with this story. Uh, yeah, new research has made it clear that there are underestimated risks about global food supplies. Um, the, uh, the, way, the way certain... Um, Certain um, problems are, are, are kind of coming together. The confluence of these problems due to climate change is going to potentially, you know, send shockwaves through the world in terms of uh, food availability. And it's uh, it's seriously um, alarming. Well, no coincidence that, that the crop production is suddenly at a greater risk than people thought because so is climate change in general. So mm -hmm. that was underestimated from the start and now people are just realizing although still not acting like it's an emergency so mm -hmm. this is going to impact we're, we're just not going to have enough to eat so there are some ways to to you know maybe try to work some systems so we can have more local food to eat but um, yeah. we've got to address the bigger picture well and the, part of the problem is there are parts of the world that don't do a very good job at producing food right now and it's not I mean it's just just the nature of their environment, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, those, uh, you know, the, the capacity of food production in those places is probably going to get worse before it gets any better, you know. And I, I, I just, and and here we are in, you know, the the area of the country, Iowa, the Midwest, where we should be able to produce a lot more food that people eat than we are producing, of course. Right. So food, um, land is not allocated to food production in particular. You know, people see all that corn, they go, oh, look at all that corn, yum. That's not the kind try we, to, we try steam to, and roll yeah, in butter. Yeah, try to, try to eat an ear of Iowa 
field corn and you won't be you won't be very pleased hey, you can i've do seen it. people it do it would sustain you i've seen people on ragbri do that stop yeah. oh corn yes i'm gonna try some of this and it's like Wah. that's right yeah it's not corn for eating it's corn for ethanol it's corn for feed for livestock it's corn for Moo. various things that happen in laboratories including high fructose corn syrup yes so yeah you're right we have all on this land that loops. could be produced on your fruit loops <clears throat> all this land that could be producing food it's producing right. feed Fuel and fiber to some extent. So I saw that story about the jet streams, and right. that that's that was very interesting because the weather patterns, of course, are becoming more erratic, more mm-hmm. extreme, and uh, because the jet streams move weather, uh, so we could expect this this sort of a streak of bad food production to just become more and more common, right? Yeah, simultaneous. Yeah. Um, Crop failure. Yeah, the uh, the the climate model uh, talks about quote an ominous signal that synchronized harvest collapses could occur in the future, and I my my sense is that future is probably not far off. You know, mm-hmm. and we're not we're not preparing for it. Uh, and uh, you know, to me also, I, I look at the instability that comes with climate change. Uh, I mean, Syria is a good example. Uh, the 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 historic drought in Syria is part of why there became so much civil unrest and so much, um, so much uh, involvement with uh, military forces. And, and certainly what we're seeing in Ukraine right now, I mean, Ukraine is, to some extent, the, uh, the breadbasket of, of Europe. It's kind of centered in Europe the way Iowa is centered in the U.S., you know? Yes. It's a good spot to be food production-wise. And the, um, a bad spot for a drought. Bad spot for a drought and also a bad spot for a conflict. Mm-hmm. And now, and now, even this this week, we have Russia saying, you know, we're gonna, we're we're not gonna be as as agreeable as we said we would when it comes to allowing Ukrainian grain to move, and that's that's just bad news for people all over the world who are dependent upon that food. We know? should be clear that, and and we, I think there's a pretty intelligent listening audience, but I've heard people refer to jet streams as something that happens because of jet airplanes. Oh really? <laughs> yes, because I think it's what the 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 gas that you see streaming out of a of a jet. No, those, those those are chemtrails. So, those are, so to be clear, we're talking about weather patterns, yeah. and they the jets do fly in yeah. jet streams to get um, to actually be maximum able to, yeah. to maximize their fuel use. Sure. I would hope. Yeah. So we're not talking about anything jet airplane related. Right. Yeah, and and, and within the ocean, of course, we've got the comparable. You know, ocean currents as well, mm-hmm. the Gulf Stream, mm-hmm. which is what makes Ireland such a nice, warm place. What? <laughs> well, compared to what it would be if it was uh, being at the same latitude as the Bay of Fundy. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the Bay of uh, Hudson Bay. There. Hudson Bay, rather. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I, I think this, uh, this study is um, it was published uh, last week in Nature Communications. Um, it's uh, Columbia University's uh, Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory put it together. Worth looking at, worth taking seriously. And you know what? Your community ought to be doing everything it can to build local food local, security. Local, local, local. We beat that drum. Yep, we'll keep beating it. <laughs> hey, Kathy, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me for You're this welcome. conversation. Hey, thanks again to our guest today, Brittany Prater, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Kathy Burns, Charles Goldman, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, 
Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week, folks, with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.